Conversations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. Hello, everyone. This is uh, Todd Fredericks, um, Associate Professor of Primary Care at The Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And we're between uh, series, uh, and part of that's due to the COVID, the SARS-CoV-2, the Rona, which has um, just, oh my gosh, it's just crushing as far as the workload. <laughs> I know for a lot of people, they're like, I don't have work. And then there's other people that have tons of work, and it's it's kind of all over the map, and I think there's a whole lot of people just wishing for things to kind of get back to a normal, steady state that we can just kind of depend on the routine. I know myself, I, I don't think I'll ever complain about routine again, uh, because, um, you know, all the stuff that's been going on, um, increases in cases at the universities and the smaller schools, uh, the elementary schools and high schools as they reopen and try to find the new balance of how to, how to, uh, how to work, um, in a quote-unquote normal context in the midst of a pandemic disease. And the reality is, is that we have 200,000 Americans dead from this disease, and it is not the flu. It is something different and uh, something worse. And um, But the nice thing is, is the case fatality rates seem to be improving, meaning that if you get COVID-19, even if you get sick, um, you probably, or you have a greater chance of surviving that illness, even if you're sick, and that's good. There's a lot of emerging technologies medications um, that are coming about. And I think that's um, that's really awesome. And it's reflective of what happens in any crisis when you're forced to face it head to head and and deal with it. And of course, Americans are typically pretty good at, how, at doing that. We, we kind of flounder around for a little bit and then we start getting our sea legs, so to speak. And then we start tackling problems and we get an order to it. And it's a very chaotic way of doing things sometimes. It's not as nuanced or, or as esoteric as some people would like, but it is the American way and it's it's how we get things done. And um, you know, there's a famous story about um, the hedgerows in World War II, uh, how when we, our forces landed in, in Northern France during Normandy, you very quickly come off of the beach approaches and you end up in what's called the bocage. And I have personally witnessed the bocage and it is these hedgerows that are planted by farmers that are dense um, bushes with with trunks that are, you know, three, four inches in diameter. And they built those hedgerows. There's a mound of dirt. And on that, they planted these shrubs. And then they would weave them in and out and create these dense walls of, of bushes. And out of that, they created fields and pasture land for their, for their animals because the animals couldn't penetrate it. The cows couldn't walk through that stuff. It was so dense. And then they would just take a, um, they would take a, a, a gate and, and they wouldn't have a lot of fencing or other things that they had to involve themselves with to, to keep that um, to keep that uh, under control. And so um, so one of the things that happened was that the Germans would set up a machine gun nest in those pastures. And, and as patrols would walk by, when they'd get to the gate opening, there was an open field of fire, and then we would lose troops that way. And so some resourceful young uh, Americans, you know, these are recruits or draftees figured out that based upon their experience on farms, they could build basically what is the modern day 
bush hog or what would be equivalent to modern day bush hog and they could attach it to tanks and the tanks could then just ram into the hedgerow cut it apart and come in at any angle they wanted to that's the american way you get somebody who's got a crude idea that worked really well in one application and they hammer away at it until they can apply it to another one and that's kind of what's happened with covid and and you can see that development and when the books are written you're going to be amazed at, at the ingenuity that occurred as part of that process but we are between segments and that's only because i haven't edited them i've got um, a uh, clinical psychologist that's coming up, uh, Don Graham. I've got Neil Copeland, a pediatrician for Specialty Spotlight, which for those of you who are interested in pediatrics, you may really like Neil. He's very, um, he's very gentlemanly in his approach and very methodical in his approach. And I, I appreciate him as a person a great deal because of that. He's easy to listen to and very thoughtful. And then uh, uh, Bryant Giles, who's an ophthalmology resident in his uh, last year, he's a chief resident in his program who loves eyes, never wanted to be an ophthalmologist, but somehow ended up in it, and now he can't think of wanting to do anything else with his life. And he's a super guy and just really fun to listen to about ophthalmology and eyes and how that works. So it's a good place to take a break and maybe do a little COVID update, and that's what I'm going to do today. I'll get it posted, and then you have something to think about as we go into uh, Neil Copeland's episode, which I think will be very good. So several things have happened in the last, oh, two months since I did a COVID update, and I think uh, I may have mentioned to you that COVID is a marathon, it's not a sprint. Um, as of now, uh, and I could be wrong, but I think we're looking at about uh, 3 million or so infections in the country. There's probably more than that, but I think it's about, uh, it's actually maybe 30 million, excuse me, 30 million. Basically, in a year's time, 30 million people infected. I think I'm getting the numbers right, but basically, holy cow, to get everybody, you know, down the road, I mean, 10 years if we're just going to let this thing run wild before everybody gets exposed to it. And even then, is the is the immunity uh, transient? And we know that can be the case with things like um, colds, right? Coronaviruses cause colds. And um, we're not immune to all colds. In fact, our immunity wanes. But the difference is, is that we have memory uh, T cells that when we get exposed to a, another coronavirus, it's the same. They trigger and they mount an immune response and they fight the infection and our colds become less severe as we get older, generally speaking. So that, that leads into some things we're going to talk about today. First thing I want to talk about is flu shots. And I will tell you, I had a conversation with, uh, well, I actually had a couple of patients that got COVID-19. And so they called me and they want to know what to do and should we get our flu shots and, you know, or it, we, a couple of them were tested. They were in close proximity and one of them uh, was not symptomatic and I think his initial test was negative, but he'd been exposed and he said, should I get my flu shot? And there's some, my personal philosophy as a physician is I don't like giving more than one injection at a time of an immunization. Now, I know, practically speaking, when babies go in to the health department or to their doctor's office, oftentimes they'll get two or three immunizations at one time. And that's really just more to facilitate um, ease for parents, right? Because it's tough giving your kid a shot. And who wants to get who wants to go through that three different times? Just give the three shots at one time, baby's upset. And an hour after they've been comforted, they're you know better and they move on. And so really we give those immunizations like that just to make sure we don't miss them. And I'm all for that, especially if you cannot rely on a person to return to get the rest of the series of vaccinations that a child needs. And so uh, you know, I said, well, hmm, that's interesting. I don't like giving more than one shot at a time. And so I would recommend that you wait until you've passed any kind of concern about developing symptoms, or if, in the case of one of the people who was symptomatic, I said, wait until you're no longer symptomatic. 
wait until you're no longer symptomatic, and then go ahead and get your flu shot. It's only a week delay, basically, most likely. And so I decided, well, hmm, it's always good to confirm, right? So I called one of my pulmonology buddies. I said, what do you guys think? And he said, guess what? If you're a person who has COVID-19 and you end up in the hospital, they go ahead and immunize against flu right then and there. Because they feel that the risk of you not being immunized against flu is worse than not than being immunized in the face of a current infection. They will make the exception if a person's reliable and will come back um, if they want to wait a week, that's fine too. So that's important to know. I'm getting my flu shot today. It is the uh, 30th of October of September, and uh, I, I recommend it. Um, just so you know, let's review. You do not get the flu from an influenza vaccination. The, you can't get the flu from an influenza vaccination. It's the way the vaccine's built, but it does trigger your immune system. And when you start triggering the immune system, you release all sorts of chemicals and, and things called cytokines, and that can make you feel pretty run down. Okay, so I've always recommended, and you should ask, you, again, the disclaimer, you should always ask your own physician about what you should do or not do in these things. But for me, for I've always recommended to my patients, look, take some Tylenol if you can tolerate it for the day before and the day after your flu shot, and you'll feel a lot better and you won't, you won't mind it nearly as much. This leads into my second, uh, so get the flu shot, right? This leads into my second thing about vitamin D. Now, you guys have heard debates about hydroxychloroquine, and I've been, I think, consistent in saying that I... I'm interested in hydroxychloroquine. I do not believe that hydroxychloroquine, like any other agent that's been proposed for the treatment of SARS-CoV-2, is the cure-all. I think that if hydroxychloroquine is found to have a benefit, it's going to be in a very narrow group of people and at a very specific time in the disease process. I can't tell you that for sure because we haven't done large prospective studies. And we need to do that. We need to do very controlled studies on hydroxychloroquine and find out if that is an appropriate approach to this disease. So I am agnostic about hydroxychloroquine. And, and you know, like anything else, you see these flamingly rabid people who say, oh, it's the cure-all for everything, and oh, it doesn't do anything. I'm not there yet. I think that the retrospective studies aren't very compelling. They don't really tell us that it does much of anything for, you know, most cases. But I also know that those studies say, and almost every one of them at the end, Good, randomized, blinded, prospective, meaning we start with the intent of studying hydroxychloroquine with COVID and we watch it over time, not looking at past medical records, but actually watching through time. Prospective studies should be done. And I think we should be doing them on many thousands of people. I do. Hard to do it because it's hard to uh, organize something like that. But I think it should be something that's investigated to, to give good science and, and reassure the, the people out there, the medical people, that, you know what, this is really good study design and it just doesn't seem to be panning out. Or it does. And it's in this group of people that we need to make those recommendations. See, I'd love to be able to pull out the Sanford Guide or one of the other drug references and say, Here's what it says about COVID-19. This is the optimal time to deliver hydroxychloroquine if you're gonna do it. I think it'd be great to have that reference. We don't have it yet. So vitamin D is another one of those agents that's come about recently. And I will tell you that vitamin D is very compelling to me. You make vitamin D by going out in the sun, preferably about 20 minutes at the midday, and UV radiation streams into your skin and some miraculous chemical reactions occur and you convert a precursor molecule into vitamin D. 
And vitamin D is really important because vitamin D is an immune modulator. It's very important for calcium metabolism. If you don't have adequate amounts of vitamin D, you can have problems with your bones and other things. And, you know, the disease rickets is caused by a lack of vitamin D, right? Uh, and so we, we want people to have vitamin D. Uh, northern climates have problems with people who have vitamin D deficiencies because they don't get enough sunlight. We started fortifying milk and other dairy products with vitamin D because we want to make sure they get adequate amounts of vitamin D. It turns out that vitamin D, in addition to calcium metabolism, is also a very good immune modulator. And in fact, uh, these cytokines, which are basically chemicals from cells that are released with certain triggers, either through a a transmitter of some sort, chemical transmitter, the intracellular triggers will trigger um, the release of cytokines. And they can be inflammatory or, or anti-inflammatory. And it turns out that vitamin D has some powerful effects in the, effects in the anti-inflammatory cytokines. And this is why when you have a respiratory infection, taking vitamin D supplements can be very, very helpful. There's logic to it. There's logic to why vitamin D would work, and there's a lot of research going on right now about what does vitamin D do in SARS-CoV-2. And so what they did, uh, there's a study done, I'll try to find it for you, but basically they did a retrospective, meaning they looked back in time at SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 patients, and they said, who of these people had vitamin D deficiencies, and how did they do? And it turns out that people who had existing, pre-existing vitamin D deficiencies did not do as well in terms of recovery and uh, response as the people who did not have vitamin D deficiencies. And from that, they've said, wait a minute, vitamin D correlation is not causation, but, they're, but based upon vitamin D's mechanism, maybe there's something to this. It's compelling enough to me based upon the soundness of physiology and the inference, the theory of it, that those people I told you that had COVID-19 or exposures, I told them start taking 4,000 international units of vitamin D a day. Some people even go so far as to say you should load yourself up for two or three days with 20 to 30,000 international units of vitamin D and then go to 4,000, two to 4,000 units of vitamin, international units, IU, of vitamin D through the disease process in two weeks afterwards. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that uh, 4,000 international units is generally determined to be safe for people. You won't cause yourself a problem. And why that comes into play is that vitamin D is one of the fat-soluble vitamins. So A, D, E, and K are all fat-soluble. And if you build those things up, vitamin A is notorious for this, you can end up um, having some other medical problems with, with too much of the vitamin in your system. So for instance, um, you know, just, just go ahead and look up vitamin A toxicity or vitamin K toxicity and you'll find out. But you're not, it, it looks like from the literature at 4,000 international units a day, you are not going to build up toxic levels of vitamin D. And for the short period of time you're on it, it may provide substantial benefit and it is a naturally occurring vitamin. You have to have it to survive. It's much like me giving melatonin as a primary a sleep aid for people in the psychiatric hospital. Your brain already makes melatonin. So I say, well, let's give them a little bit more and I see if I can avoid a synthetic um, hypnotic. Um, you know, I don't want to give them trazodone. I don't want to give them some other drug if I can just give them an, an, a drug that their body already makes to solve the problem. That's why I like to use melatonin. And I have pretty good success with it, um, especially when I combine it with a little bit of Benadryl, which is, of course, diphenhydramine, a synthetic drug which combined with melatonin oftentimes gets the results I want. Again, I'm not giving you medical advice. I'm just telling you that understanding the mechanism of action of these uh, transmitters, vitamins, etc., can help you. And uh, it's something you should talk to your doctor about if you get COVID-19. Should I go ahead and start taking vitamin D? Very little risk. 
perhaps substantial benefit. Uh, I also think it's important that we talk about convalescent plasma. If you go to redcrossblood.org, uh, you're going to find out how to donate blood and where you can donate in your area. And convalescent plasma has emerged in the last month or so, uh, and that is tied into some initiatives by the Red Cross, as being very helpful in the treatment of serious SARS-CoV-2 infection. Basically, the theory is this, that we use immune therapy, um, immune globulins, that is, that are, those are antibodies generated somewhere else. When you get sick and your immune system is really struggling, we can give you a blast of someone else's antibodies, and they can get the process started to help you with that infection. The idea with convalescent plasma is that you take a person, and the science isn't solid on this yet, but it appears to be uh, somewhere between two weeks and two months after you've had a COVID-19 infection, you donate blood, it has antibodies to COVID-19 in the plasma, which is the liquid portion of the blood, that is then processed in a way so that you can't transmit other infection and that sort of thing. And that's given to someone who has a serious COVID-19 infection. And anecdotally, that means patient to patient, it appears that there's substantial benefit in helping a patient get past significantly debilitating symptoms. And what's happening right now is there are large research protocols going on to see how much plasma do you need on average, um, what concentration of antibodies in the plasma are optimal, because as we go along, four months after you've had COVID-19, the antibody levels may not be high enough to make much of a difference. And I talked to one of my buddies who does active convalescent plasma uh, research, and he said, I said, how much do you give? And he goes, enough. He goes, we start with one unit, and we repeat another unit, we repeat another unit until we get a clinical response. Eventually, what's going to happen is plasma products will be uh, or blood products will be collected in a way that there are these little tubes that come along in the packaging that allow a, a lab to sample uh, various parts of that sample. So let's say in convalescent plasma, you'd have these three little segmented tubes you could clip off. You can type and cross-match that to make sure the plasma blood type is properly matched to the patient. You could also run it through an analyzer and look at the concentration of antibodies in that sample and then put that in your research study and find out when they were given this much antibody, this worked better than when they were given this much antibody. That actually is just a simple logistics thing, and it has to do with the packaging systems of the blood products, which I don't know much about. I just know it's probably going to take some changes in the machinery to do that. But that's where we're headed to. And eventually you'll see blood products show up, and it'll have four or five of those crimped little tubes with samples of that big bag of plasma in it, so they can be clipped off and looked at by researchers as, they, as those units are given. Convalescent plasma... Um, my gut says is going to is going to be a very big tool in the management of not just COVID nineteen but future viral diseases. That we're going to learn how to do that very very well and get people ahead of the game. It is not again a miracle cure. It is something that helps in therapy. But to that end, if you go to redcrossblood.org, you can look at where you can donate blood. And what's been happening is the Red Cross has been actually screening for COVID nineteen antibodies now for some time, and they've been they've been stockpiling that plasma in anticipation of releasing it. In some cases, they are releasing it. You see, you can't just process blood products where you donate blood. Frequently, that raw blood has to be moved to a different state. In the case of West Virginia, for instance, that blood is taken to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, usually, and it is run through a plasma blood processing center where the plasma is taken off, the platelets are taken off, the uh, red blood cells are taken off, and they're each used for different purposes to the point where the Red Cross will say, you could potentially save the life of three different people with your one unit of blood don whole blood donation. 
it is not a cheap process, which is why hospitals pay for those blood products. They have to keep the Red Cross's processing centers and the cost of generating those products moving. It costs money. There's lab techs involved. There's machinery involved, quality control involved. So it is a, a, a thing that costs something. But you as a donor help reduce that cost because blood donors get a cookie and some orange juice. That's usually their compensation. They are really doing it for the love of other people and for the care and concern and a way of doing a public service. And so what I want to appeal to you to do is to go out and donate blood because here's the deal. Even if you haven't had, and listen to me carefully, if you have not had COVID-19, your whole blood could save someone's life. Trauma patient. Whole blood is a wonderful thing to give to someone who's lost a lot of blood and trauma because it has plasma, which has not just antibodies, and it has clotting factors, which help people clot after trauma. You could help someone with leukemia. You could help someone with serious diseases, uh, blood clotting disorders where they need platelets. Donate blood. Because the beauty of it is, is they're going to screen it for COVID-19 antibodies. And if you were one of the asymptomatic people that had COVID-19, you may have antibodies that can help someone there too. It's also the case that the more blood that's donated, because blood is treated as a regional resource, you could donate blood in Idaho and it could end up being used in Nevada. But the more people that donate locally, the more likely it is that the local donation will stay local. And you can even track where your blood donation went. The American Red Cross does that. When you register with them, when you donate some blood, they will tell you this is where your blood went to help someone. They're very good about that. And I think it's a great organization. And I challenge all of you to go to go take that step. And especially if you've had COVID-19, call your Red Cross Blood Center. You do not have to go to a plasmapheresis center. You can go to you can go to the local Red Cross donation center, and you can donate whole blood, and they will use that blood product uh, for good. I can guarantee it. I've given a lot of blood in my lifetime to patients, and it has helped a lot of people. And I want to thank anybody and everybody that has taken the time to donate a unit of blood or more, um, because you are doing great work even though you may never know who you help. But you can if you go to get on the app. Um, the other thing about that is you can donate blood about every 54 days, so just round it to every two months. Every 60 days, you can donate your blood. They want you to have enough time to recover and build up your, your blood uh, in, your, in your system. And the other thing is is that I've only, I think the number's correct, but only about 3% of people that, don't, that, that are out there can actually be successful at donating blood. They may have had an infection or something else, that disqualifies them. And so the Red Cross needs a lot of donors to find blood that's suitable to be able to give to other people because we have very high quality control for blood products in this country, as you might imagine. It'd be very poor form to give someone convalescent plasma uh, for SARS-CoV-2 and give them HIV or hepatitis in the process, right? So we have to make sure we screen those products. And there are plenty of people out there who've had these infections, let's just say hepatitis, may not even know they've had it. And the first time they find out that they have had hepatitis is when they donate blood and it gets screened. And so there's a benefit to that too. I can guarantee you that if you go donate blood, you they will find out whether or not you've had SARS-CoV-2 or at least recently enough the antibodies are detectable. So that's a benefit as well. The final thing I want to talk about, and then you guys can wait hopefully for a week and then you'll get uh, Neil Copeland to talk about pediatrics, is vaccines. So in the next few months, you're going to see, I'll, I'll just say it, you're going to see chaos. And it's not a bad chaos. It's the, it's the chaos associated with trying to build a vaccine in record time, make sure that safety measures are abided by, and distribute it to a country of 325 million people, Mine, divided by two, because the vaccines don't go to children. Uh, the COVID vaccines right now are targeted for adult use only. 
But let's just say 165 million Americans uh, anticipating that. Now, what's going to happen with vaccinations, and this has already been anticipated by the CDC, is there will be in a slow rise initially, about 20% of the population, adult population, will get the vaccine. These are so-called tier one people. They're the, they're the medical responders, the people who are dealing with COVID every day, the military that deals with COVID, military that's deploying, uh, first responders again, people in direct healthcare relationships where they could be exposed to COVID-19, politicians, people who are involved in the federal, state, and local uh, politics, they're leaders that have to be well uh, because the transition of power can, as you can surmise can be contentious in this country. So we want to make sure that there's stability within leadership organizations. You can imagine firefighters getting these vaccines. That'll be the first group that'll come out. And then gradually that will ramp up to where the general population availability is there. You can see that already with point of care COVID tests. Remember when COVID started, it was hard to get a test. And now more and more there's availability. You can go to your primary care doctor office in many cases and just get a, a point of care, you know, within 15 minutes, you have a result test. Same thing will happen with vaccines. And so we anticipate that there will be this big, steady ramping up. The target is released in November. I don't think that'll happen because of Christmas and everything else. I don't think that will really get off uh, the ground until probably around January. And then by June, you're going to be able to walk in, I think, if I'm correct, you'll be able to walk into almost any CVS, Walgreens, your doctor's office and say, I need a COVID immunization. And they'll say, sure, we'll give you, we'll get you, we'll get you a shot. That should speak to those of you who sometimes get distracted by the conspiracy theorists. Um, it would be really bad form to take the first responders, the tier one people, give them a vaccine that kills them or does terrible things to them and think that the American people are cool with that. It's just not going to happen. And when you hear about adverse events, understand that every vaccine has adverse events. I've talked about this before that I never use anti-vaxxer. I think it's a nasty term and it's just divisive. Um, maybe vaccine curious, um, vaccine naive, um, vaccine concerned, okay? Or be better terms. People that I don't know if this is safe and I don't want to give it to my kid or I'm a little afraid that I could get sick from this or, you know, fine. That's what doctors are for. We're supposed to teach you. And this is the literature. This is what it says. I'm getting one. I am. I'm convinced that whatever comes out will be um, have some risk, just like measles, mumps, rubella, polio. They all carry a risk. You can have adverse events. You may have heard recently about a case of transverse myelitis in the UK uh, with a vaccine in one of the test populations. It happens. There's going to be adverse events. And when it happens, there's going to be some breaks put on that vaccine. And they're going to do a root cause analysis. They're going to find out, was this a coincidence or was this caused by the vaccine? If it was caused by the vaccine, are we seeing an abnormal, unacceptable rate of adverse events? Um, so keep that in mind. There isn't a medication out there, vaccines included, that do not have adverse events. I can give a person penicillin, I can give the next person, and they're fine, I can give the next person penicillin, they have an anaphylactic, a very severe allergic reaction and die. It can happen. But... What we want is we want something that has such a low risk of adverse events with good efficacy, because it's not just enough that we don't hurt people when we give them the vaccine. We also want to make sure the vaccine's effective. And unless you get a you know 50% or higher, get roughly, of the people who get the vaccine generate antibodies, then the vaccine's a failure. So it could be perfectly safe to give to someone, it just doesn't work. Or it could be great and it works great, but the adverse risk event risk profile is too high and we can't use it because even though it works, you know. 3% of people get adverse reactions. It's just not worth it. So you're going to see a lot of discussion about that. That will lead to chaos. That will lead to stops and starts and social media will explode. And you'll have all these different people talking about the vaccine and how awful it is. Keep in mind, there is no benefit to wiping out large segments of the population with a vaccine that doesn't work, is not efficacious, 
and has a huge adverse risk profile. There's just no good, there's no good end to that. It will lead to disaster. So that's not going to happen. Uh, but there will be stops in vaccine administration. And the last thing I'll say about that, which is really important, is you need to remember that when you get a vaccine, you're going to have to get a booster most likely a couple weeks, four weeks, three, three weeks later. And you need to remember what vaccine you got because you can't mix them. They're different. They're, the way they work are different. And so if you get a Pfizer vaccine, let's just say hypothetically or a Moderna vaccine, you need to remember that yourself. Don't rely on the medical record. Remember it yourself so that if your record got messed up and they try to give you the, a different brand, you say, wait a minute, I had a Pfizer vaccine for the shot. First shot, I need the same, the Pfizer one for the second shot because otherwise it won't, it won't work right. So it's going to take a little bit of patience. But I think by June, uh, steady state, uh, things will be working pretty good. And I think you'll start seeing a lot, lot more comfort with in-person school, a lot more comfort with just in general how people behave and move themselves around society. Um, uh, call out to people who want to wear masks in their car by themselves and who are riding around on their bicycles with masks on. Guys, really, it, it wears people out. Take the mask off really be outside enjoy the fresh air in your car it's fine open the windows if you're really concerned just get a little bit of ventilation going through the car but people need to see people without masks on and this is a good closing point so we know that suicides have gone up um uh, in the military uh, there's been an increase i think it's about a 20 percent increase in the baseline of suicides which is already something we're concerned about on the military side and in civilian populations and this is taxing people. It's wearing them out. Mentally, they just have a hard time getting their head around it. And um, it's also the Who Moved My Cheese. And I think it's important to revisit that. Who Moved My Cheese is a wonderful little book about what happens when life changes. Life is change. The universe is entropy. The second law of thermodynamics talks about entropy, that things go from order to disorder. That there's always this change and flux in life and how that works. And it's important that we teach our children this. It's important that we teach our students this. It's important we teach everybody that life changes. If you think that you're going to be able to live just a stable little existence that, that doesn't ever throw you know, curveballs at you, you're going to be sorely mistaken and it's going to be very difficult for you to deal with curveballs when they come. So it's really important that you have mercy and compassion on those around you. You reassure them that just because your cheese moved doesn't mean that it's... Um, I'll put the link, by the way, to the book, Who Moved My Cheese? There's also a cartoon on YouTube, which is really fun to watch. I'll put that in the show notes too. It's about little mice, these mice. The cheese moves and one mice does really, one mouse does really well with it. The other mouse gets confused and has some trouble figuring out how to deal with it. The cheese is still there. It's just in a different place. So that routine you took every day to go get your cheese is now going to require some adaptation and movement to a different place. It's okay. Pay particularly close attention to those people around you who are having trouble finding their cheese or having trouble dealing with the fact that their cheese moved because they need the help. They need people to actively, not passively, wait for them to call, but for you to actively step out and say, tell me how you are doing. It's really important. And they need to hear a concerned voice because they might be on the edge of wanting to end their life or do something drastic and terrible to themselves because they just don't know what to do. Um, really important. So uh, you could be a powerful force in, in saving someone's life. That's a really important thing. So with that, I'm going to leave you uh, for a week 
I'm going to try to put this in and get this edited and thrown up before the weekend. I'll get Neil, hopefully, best laid intentions, I'll get Neil stuff edited, and you will then be able to um, to hear a pediatrician. But in the meantime, watch for those developments, anticipate them coming, and don't be surprised when you see the, the flux of social media stuff. Just, if I were you, I would just tune it out. I really would. I, I, social media is so wacky. I mean, I'm reading a book now by Jonathan Haidt, who is a moral psychologist, um, and he has some premises that I'm, I don't particularly align with, but in general, he's a very thoughtful and sober guy. Um, and he talks about zealotry and people who are on the right or the left that get so caught up in one point, they can't let go. They really become insane. And so when it comes to vaccines, when it comes to other things, just avoid it. Um, don't watch it. Seriously, wait. Talk to your doctor. Talk to your nurses. And by the way, if they're zealots, find another one. You need a doctor that will entertain you. And it, there's no stupid question. Any physician that looks at you as if you've asked a stupid question, unless you are a uh, specialist in medicine and you really should know, it's not their position to judge you on that. It's their position to listen to what you have to say, try to frame the question in a way that's understandable for them, and then reframe it in a way you understand. That's legit. You have the right to shop for the people that will speak to you with respect and dignity and teach you in a way that helps you manage your your health and your and, and the pathway you have to take. And you know, I'm a person that gave my kids immunizations. I did. I didn't give them all of them because there were some of them I thought, yeah, the risk is greater than the benefit, so I'm not going to do that. But I'm also a person that has talked to many people who are concerned about their vaccines. And I do so and give them dignity in the process. I respect them. I respect their willingness to ask tough questions and, and want to know and be reassured that it's going to be okay for their children. It's not my right as a physician to browbeat someone. My, my, my privilege as a physician is to have them trust me enough to listen to what I have to say and my, my thoughts about their lives and their care. I don't want a centralized healthcare system that, that sends down massive mandates about how we have to behave. That's not a sign of a free society. A free society is one that takes on the challenge and the work of doing good science, of talking to people with respect and dignity, respecting other opinions, and trying to influence. I can't convince you of anything. You have to convince yourself. I can influence you, though. And if I do my job properly, that influence will be powerful and it'll be something that allows you to live your life freely with all the rights and dignity that you are that you are deserving of and live better. So with that, I wish you a great week. If you have any questions, of course, follow the outro, but TR Fredericks at, uh, on Facebook or Medical Cinema at Twitter. Happy to entertain them. Uh, and uh, uh, thank you for listening to Rotations. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or official positions of the Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we sometimes pull off the street. 
Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators. You must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema for Todd, at Prof Plow for Brian, Nisarg Bakshi for Nisarg Bakshi, and at Rotations PCAST, or by visiting MediaMedicine.com slash Rotations. Check us out on Facebook at Media and Medicine. And finally, for me, Todd Fredericks, you can also send me a message through my Facebook page at TR Fredericks. But please, I have a sense of feelings, so embrace your inner non-hate.